How to effectively balance soft skills and hard skills while sitting on boards? How is trust related to company culture and what can be done to improve culture? And what is eventually the importance of storytelling in leadership? Well, these are some of the questions that we'll explore today in this new episode of the VAB podcast that features our guest, William Best. Bill is a seasoned and skilled business executive who's had a successful 40-plus year career holding a variety of senior roles, including as a CEO, COO, and CFO, as well as board roles in a variety of sectors. Bill is currently the CEO and partner of the Regal Holdings in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the managing principal of Vine Street Shops, LLC, Toronto, Canada, and Orlando, Florida. He's a board member of Truett Hearst Incorporated, a Sonoma-based winery, and he also operates his own advisory and consulting company, Garrett Lane's Advisors, and of course, he's a very active VAB member. So that, with this, welcome to the show, Bill. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure for me to be here and to talk to you today. Such a pleasure, Bill. But before getting to our chat, I wanted to remind our audience about the purpose of this podcast. So, across the episodes, we will always leverage on our guests' knowledge to learn with them about how you can become a better advisor and how you can accelerate your career and your business. Here's your host, Andrea Iorio speaking. I'm an Italian keynote speaker to more than 100 companies per year, focusing on digital transformation, leadership and innovation, and a best-selling author of two books in Portuguese. Yes, I'm based out of New York City now, but I worked over the last 10 years in Brazil as the head of Tinder and as Chief Digital Officer at L'Oreal, and where I today teach at the Executive MBA of Fundação Dom Cabral. And I wanted to start off the episode, Bill, uh, you know, wanting the audience to get to know you better, but before anything else, I know and we chatted beforehand that you are seven times Ironman finisher, so I really wanted to start with that. Tell us more about how you got there and also a bit more about your background and career. Thank you, Andrea. I, I guess I'd start by just sharing a bit of my philosophy in life. That life is about a thousand different experiences, not the same experience a thousand times over. And that life is about experiences and not things. And back in 2008, my, my daughter, who at the time was a competitive figure skater and training in Lake Placid, New York, took me to the finish of the, uh, of the 2008 Ironman. And we arrived at the finish line at about 10 o'clock at night. And now with my experience in Ironman, I now call that story time. Because <laughs> okay. at, between 10 and midnight, you have this people with stories crossing the finish line. They've been out on the race course for 15 hours to 17 hours. You have to finish by, the seven, by hour 17. Otherwise, you're not official. Gotcha. And It, it was, it's just a remarkable time because if you, if you get to that finish line and you don't cry, you're not human because the, the determination and the perseverance of people that come across that finish line. I was not in a great place personally in my career physically at that point. I was tipping the scales at well over 300 pounds. And this is not an Ironman body. Um, this is somebody who I have... Um, prided myself in my Ironman career with perseverance and determination. And I left that finish line saying to myself that I would complete an Ironman in two years. Wow. So I trained hard. I lost, I got down to about uh, 235 pounds from over 308. 
And I ended up um, going into my first, like my first Ironman in 2010 in Lake Placid. And I went in with all the enthusiasm of a raw rookie. And I committed some rookie mistakes. Part of and it, yeah. Not being somebody who was going to do anything but flirt with that 17-hour cutoff time, I couldn't afford to make mistakes. Um, it's a long story, but I can make it very short by saying I made the final turn with two, just over two kilometers to run as I ran past the stadium because Ironman mess with your head. They like you to see the finish line and then they send you out for a couple more miles. <laughs> and as I came by, they were shutting down because of the cutoff time. It was midnight and the cutoff time had occurred. I was seven, I would, I'd been out there for just about 17 hours. I finished though. I, I gutted out that last two and a half kilometers. I hit the finish line at 1226. And wow. it was a remarkable experience because one of the things that I experienced was what I call now my perfect strangers, people I've never seen before, literally hundreds, if not a few thousand, leaving that finish line, knowing where I was at and giving me the most incredible encouragement one could ever imagine. So I crossed the finish line. It was dark. They'd taken all the banners down. There was just the metal skit shell. But the race director was there with a with a T-shirt, a medal, and a hat. And he presented them to me and gave me a big hug and said, "This is you're what Iron Man's all about. And I thought, great, but I never wore any of those three things. I came back the next year. I finished my first official race on time. And I did six more after that um, in various places in the world. I've used my Ironman um, in so many ways in terms of seeing we've, we travel to races, so it's a great way to see the world. But more than anything, it teaches you so many wonderful skills, discipline, perseverance, good planning, good process. And I actually do a whole in, um, inspirational, motivational talk on this as well that I call, that I call Never Stop Believing. Wow, that's uh, the perfect uh, title for, you know, a story about, uh, you know, basically uh, starting again. And, you know, you said you were in a particular moment in life and in your career. And basically as a phoenix, you know, you're starting again and never stop believing uh, about uh, uh, change in life and how you can become a better person and uh, also I think the same parallel draws with uh, careers right and I think uh, uh, I wanted to take uh, a little bit of that what you what you told us about uh, and take it within the context of your career basically you've had a you know more than 40 years of experience doing fix-ups integrations bringing strategy into action uh, to me it reminds uh, you know as a great analogy to Iron Man actually so that I really wanted to get a a better perspective of uh, some of the work that you've done also for our audience to get to know it better and some of the uh, advising and consulting work you do as well uh, today. Uh, a little bit about your career and also for people who are interested in getting to better understand uh, what you do now. You know, it's interesting because if, if one was to look at my resume on the surface, they'd look at it and go, this is just a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of different things. I think at its core, the thing that I like to emphasize about my career is that every position that I've ever held or every role I've ever gone to has been as the result of a pre-existing personal relationship. 
So it, it really underscores the importance of relationships and network and maintaining, maintaining those relationships with people that are meaningful. I've got a very extensive rol Rolodex, um, to use an old phrase, um, a, a very extensive Rolodex, but I can count on very few hands the number of people who really you connect with and gel with, and it's not about what can you do, what can you do for me lately. It's really the importance of staying in touch, maintaining an interest in people, and that's what leads to the to those good solid relationships. Now, as for the career, it's been an interesting progression. I'm I'm a trained uh, accountant. I earned my CA now CPA with Coopers and Librand. I won't walk you through all the details. But I've, I've been fairly fearless in my career in, in a simple belief that business, a business is a business. It has revenue, it has expenses, there are nuances to the business. And as long as you're always looking forward, you're always doing the right things for the business, you can learn and adapt to any business. And I think one, I think there are two issues these days which, I, which come to the fore, which I find concerning. One is that I'm now 62. I've been working now since I was in my early 20s. Um, there's a, I've have a lot. There's a lot of wisdom with us old us old folks, and I think there's been a, a discarding of a lot of that wisdom. And I, to me, life is about constant evolution, constant growth, and moving forward. And I, I tie back to my Ironman experience in many ways because people say, well you know, I can't do this, or I can't do that. And my response to them is just do something, True. you know, and, and whether it's taking a risk on a new type of company or learning something, um, I believe for very firmly that you live your life to fall off a cliff at the end of it. You don't, you don't as assume and you don't accept a steady decline and somehow you're not relevant. Um, the other trait that I find that is that people get pigeonholed. And I think that when you, when you pigeonhole and you live in an echo chamber from a business, you don't have the richness of bringing in other perspectives, other experiences and, and other points of view. So my career has been varied in terms of sector. It's been in, varied in terms of role. It's been varied in terms of geography. And I think that that is one of the things that I will that I always bring to the table is that I've seen and done a lot, and it, it's a bit it's challenging at times because you I, I feel I can speak to a number of different topics, and people dismiss you because they hear you're an accountant. So what do you know about data mining, or what do you know about AI, or what do you know about marketing and branding? And I, marketing and branding is the one that I always love to seize on because at the end of the day, anyone who markets in the traditional sense is it's a very superficial approach. And because to me, brand is how you do business. And it is, it is systemic and endemic to the way you conduct yourself and the way your, your business entity, whether it be not-for-profit, for-profit, um, actually does business. 
That's great because you touched upon also the fact that uh, it's not only about the technical knowledge, uh, but it's also about, you know, the emotional side. You talked about relationships. And I think this is really interesting because it gets to a point that I wanted to explore with you, which is uh, the balance between hard skills and soft skills. As you said, if we were looking from a traditional standpoint or like a business framework, you know, as an accountant, you are not expected maybe to dive into other areas such as technology, such as marketing, branding, and that uh, your knowledge was tied to accounting. And, you know, traditional wisdom would be that your career would follow a linear path and basically you will hyper specialize. And we know it's not like that. You're a proof of that. And so yeah. the important thing and that uh, is like, there is much more to the hard skills, right? There is much more to that. There's what, you know, eventually are called soft skills. And so I wanted to get your perspective on how to strike a balance and how are soft skills important uh, on boards, in management and in business? Well, I'm going to start off with telling you a dirty little secret of early in my career. <laughs> Please when do. I was, when I was at Cooper's and Librand <clears throat> many, many years ago, I used to be the first one to the office. I used to arrive at, at a client or an office at six or, or 6.30 in the morning. And I would work at, tirelessly till about 10. And then from about 10 until four, I would slack off and I would learn about the business. I would go to the different management teams. I'd go to the different people and every business I was in, and I had a pretty broad variety of businesses that I audited. I, I spent a lot of time learning about them. And then about four o'clock, I'd go back to my, my usual tasks. And I'd probably work till 10 or 11 at night. So I gave them all the hours. I put in the time. But I, I was really, it was really enlightening and helpful and really charted my path to gaining knowledge. And I was involved with banking, franchising, retailing, um, metal production. It was amazing the number of, of clients that I had and how many things I learned early. I, I would tell you that hard skills are learned and soft skills evolve. And the, that evolution, you have to be open to that evolution. Um, but at, the, at their core, the soft skills are about communication and trust. And if you can't have honest, direct, frank, respectful, constructive, you can use any number of, of adjectives to describe it. If you don't develop those communication skills in a, in a direct and respectful manner, then you're, you're never going to be successful because you're never going to be able to build the sort of trust that you need, which inspires cultures, which, which, which in crisis situations get everybody rowing the same way in the boat. And go ahead. And, and I like the fact that you mentioned like trust and uh, the fact that like communication, these are two of the most important soft skills and the important, the, the interesting thing about soft skills that besides uh, not being so easy to teach, as you mentioned, but they evolve over time through experience. The second thing is how you measure them. It's, it's tough. How do you measure the level of trust within teams or maybe the level of communication within a board? And so it's really tough. And I think this is one of the reasons why they have been kind of like left a little bit aside as seen as not very impacting the business. 
the truth is they impact a lot. It's just maybe not so tangible as a hard skill that can be measured, uh, that can be uh, tested, like, uh, you know, proficiency of a language or like uh, uh, mathematics skills. And so I think uh, soft skills suffer a little bit of these advantages. But as you mentioned, and, and I wanted to get to communication and trust uh, uh, in a moment, but uh, one thing about soft skills that you mentioned is that uh, they can be uh, develop, right? They develop over time. And here I wanted to touch upon the role of crisis, role of like hard moments in life. I, getting back to your own experience, I believe that maybe if you were not in a particular moment in life, you know, a hard place, as you mentioned, maybe you would have not gotten into Ironman. And I think yeah. the same thing when we look at leadership, when we look at, you know, board decisions, you know, sometimes crises, they generate a sense of urgency to change that help us develop the heart, the soft skills. And so I wanted to get your perspective on that. Do you think that there are special environments where we can develop further our soft skills? Yeah. Um, and let me come back to a couple sort of preemptory comments. The first would be that I, in this day and age, there's a reluctance to honest, frank communication, and there's much more passive aggressive type of communication, which really not only is ineffective, but it erodes culture and it erodes trust. The second is, and one of the things you asked um, in a moment ago was how do you measure? One of the ways that I measure is the is is to look at two factors. How much do people listen? And how much do people actually around the table who may not be sitting at the head of the table actually come forward and speak? And there's two things that I have found that are really important. Usually it's the quietest person at the table who often has the most thoughtful voice. Yeah, true. And, it, and, and you can't embarrass them by drawing them out and by putting them on the spot. But you have to find ways to engage those people and bring them forward. It's re that is really, really critical. And then the people who want to suck all the air out of the room, you have to have mechanisms and sometimes, quite frankly, a hammer to basically uh, quiet them down. Because again, you're there's, there's many people out there who think that if they continue to say the same thing over and over and over again, they're going to get their way, regardless of how ill-informed or, or ill-advised their way might be. And I'm going to, before I get to crisis, I'm going to share one more story with you, which I think is really important. Please. Um, when I was in my, um, in my early, late 40s, I assumed the role of the COO of a major law firm. Now, I'm not a lawyer. And we had 750 law partners and 1,800 lawyers. Wow. And I, and I often joke that it was like working with, with, 18, with 750 popes and 1,800 cardinals. And Not an easy task. No. And, and, you know, one of the most important uh, things to achieve in an environment like that where they're all smart they're all trained to adversarially advocate at law school you know they can believe that black is black but if you are telling them that it's black they will tell you it's white and one of the things that i really i learned early on was that 
consensus is the best form of decision making. Sometimes it takes a little longer. Sometimes it's a little messy. You do have to circle the wagons once a decision is made and support it. But consensus is the most effective way of making good decisions. Therefore, you have to canvas the people around the table and you have to make sure that people are heard. Even if you don't agree with their point of view, you allow them to be heard. And I often bristle when people say, well, I drive consensus because that's an oxymoron. If you're driving it, it means you're not allowing consensus to occur. I agree. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about let's talk about crisis situations. I believe that the strongest and greatest relationships are made in times of crisis, because that is when you see people in their raw state. That is when you see people either at their best or likewise at their worst, and people who don't re react well to crisis will often take a very bullish approach to it as opposed to remaining calm and, and making sure the most important thing that you can make sure in, in crisis situations is that everyone has a clear, uh, a clear and consistent set of facts as to how to make the decisions to deal with the crisis. And sometimes you, you can communicate it in, in soft ways. Sometimes you just don't have the time and you can communicate it in hard ways. And sometimes the communication can be soft. And sometimes the communication has to be extremely direct to set people down. Um, and, you know, there's, I've got an interesting story, which has nothing to do with business, but it was the first jury and the only jury I've ever served on. And it was a very interesting situation because we were coming up, it was actually coming up to Easter weekend. And it was a Thursday afternoon, years and many, many years ago. And we had just gone through a trial, which was a sham. Um, and I okay. won't get into the details of it, but clearly the defendant was not guilty. And we went into the jury room. And first of all, nobody wanted to be the jury foreman. So it's interesting in different uh, groups of people who likes uh, how many leaders you can have and how many leaders you, you, you don't have. And in YPO, I often find that you put 12 people in a room and everybody wants to be a leader. You put 12 uh, ordinary people in a room and nobody wants to be a leader. So I volunteered to be the jury foreman. And I went around and I, and I took a vote. And the vote was unanimous, not guilty. But I sensed, I sensed that people were very uncomfortable because they were there to do a job. They knew that the, the trial had, to a large extent, been a sham. And they needed to be heard. And so, they, but balanced against, they all wanted to go home because it was a long weekend. So I literally gave everybody 10 minutes to say their piece. We went around the table. It took two hours. Everybody said their piece. We re-voted. The, the verdict did not change. But afterwards, people came up to me and said, thank you. I really appreciated hearing people's perspectives, being able to talk about it. And I'm so glad that we didn't just railroad ourselves out of here.
because I I feel better about and that was a that was a unanimous feeling of the people in the room. So in times of I bring this back to times of crisis, because well you will often have someone that wants to take charge and they want to make all the decisions, but you need input from different constituencies who have different interests, different expertise in that crisis, and you do have to take those moments of time to make sure that the communication is good, that the listening has occurred, that the deliberation is reasonable, and then you can make a decision. And that can take five minutes sometimes, or it can take five months. It And it depends on the nature of the crisis. But so often, you don't have to move as quickly as people want because they get hopped up on this or the urgency they feel. This makes a lot of sense and it's so interesting how it is uh, tied to effective communication and when we look at even at the role of boards and uh, communication for them, uh, storytelling is key because they together with management kind of like well especially management then it's validated by boards but like set out the vision and if the vision is not engaging enough or at least not communicated in a w engagingly enough uh, 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 way uh, i think people will not follow uh, the instructions and feel like they have not been part of that as you mentioned and uh, these examples are great because it reminds me a lot of like the conflict that go on uh, between top management and uh, uh, teams oftentimes because of lack of communication. And trust is actually a glue to all of this. And so uh, I wanted to get your perspective also the role of trust, uh, because I think especially in turbulent times, the only way to, to get out of that is through collaboration and there is no collaboration without trust. Uh, that's true. Um, I've actually just finished a really wonderful book in these troubled times called The Book of Hope by Jane Goodall, who nice. is one of, my, one of my heroes. And she draws the, our, our closest um, ancestor, so to speak, um, as, human, as human beings or homo sapiens. It, the only thing that really has differentiated our evolution from that of chimps is that we somewhere back many thousands of years ago, humankind communicate, learn to communicate first by language, then by writing and, and that storytelling. And what's really interesting is that in times of, uh, in times of crisis, it's, it's often the background information where you need the communication the most to be able to re react, respond, make decisions. And I would hazard to say, I just, I, I just pulled two words there that I'm gonna capitalize on. React and respond. In times of crisis, it is absolutely imperative that you are in a mindset of response and not react. And the difference yeah. between the two of them is that when you're responding to something, in my view, you're doing it with facts, you're doing it with background, you're doing it with deliberation in responding. And I use the old, the difference between humans and, and, and dogs is between stimulus and response. We have the, a moment of cognition. So if you hit a human, if you punch a human, they're gonna look at the person who punched them and say, 
hmm, is this person much bigger than me? And if I fight back, are they going to punch me even harder? Whereas a dog, if you if a dog is hit, the dog's going to bite right away. Yeah. So we have that ability to cognate. And that cognition is so important in times of crisis that you are able to respond and not simply react. Because when you react, often you will go to the lowest common denominator. You'll make perhaps the easiest decision, the path of least resistance, which may not be the, the real solution. And you haven't even given a real solution a chance because you've simply reacted. That's so true. And you mentioned the book, the Book of Hope by Jane Goodhall and Doug Abrams. I wanted yeah. to get your perspective on any other book, podcast, or content that you recommend to our audience uh, among your latest readings or anything that helped you in your career as an advisor. Anything else that you... You know, there's an old book called... Um, oh. When we were chatting, you mentioned Stewards of the Future. Well, Stewards of the Future is a current book that I'm reading, which is written by Helly Bank Jorgensen. Yeah. And I am currently, again, back to continuous learning. I'm back to school. I'm doing a, uh, a an, an ESG board governance certification. Amazing. Because I really want to understand it. And Helly has put into, into a single book a wonderful... Um, sort of guide to ESG. And when, when we talk about ESG, we're not just talking about climate. You know, there's so many um, appeals to the onion of ESG and, and sustainable capitalism. Um, and it's, it's a great read. Um, the book I was looking for was an old book called Organizing Genius by Warren Bennis. Ah, okay. And it's, it's old, like I'm, it was published probably 30 plus years ago. And it looks at six great groups in history that have been notable. So the Manhattan Project, the original team that did the animation for, for the first Disney animated movie. Um, it talks about the uh, Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign team. And it is a wonderful, easy read of sort of six uh, short stories about leadership and communication and, and how these groups operated in their space. The other books, the other author that I absolutely love is Jim Collins. Um, He's good great. To, good to yeah. great, built to last. Because you read a lot of business books that are anecdotal, whereas, and so you, you know, you read Jack Welch's books and you read all these guys' books, but the thing about Jim, which sets him apart, in my view, is everything he does is research-based, and it's data-based, and it's fact-based, because he's primarily an intellectual. And I really, I really admire um, all of the things that he's written over time. And the one thing that I will say about his, his readings that I really appreciate is in the later years, he has acknowledged where things have changed. He's acknowledged where yeah. he may have been off base. And I think that's really, really important. But I come back to two really important concepts that Jim talks about. One is level five leadership. So you have, you are, you, your ego is for the business. It's not for an individual. And I have rarely met many leaders in my 
in my travels who are truly level five leaders. And then the other is the whole concept of getting the right people on the bus, getting those right people on the bus and then deploying them to the right places is more important than trying to fill seats just for the sake of filling seats. Totally true. That's one of my favorite readings as well. Good to great and level five leadership. It's such a great book. Um, Bill, now that we're, you know, and time flies, especially when it's a good conversation, uh, we're approaching the end of our conversation. I wanted to get your perspective around VAB um, and your participation as a member. What do you think has worked for you? And uh, what is, according, you know, to your perspective and experience, the best way to approach? There's a lot of content, contacts to be made through VAB. Uh, What are some of the best practices that have worked for you? uh in uh, being a part of VAB. Yeah, I'll begin by reflecting on on my involvement with VAB. I've known Mark for many many years um through YPO and I find Mark to be one of the most extraordinary networkers on the planet. Yeah. And what I love about Mark is I Mark I am a realist. Mark is a man of joy. There are are very few things in life which phase Mark, and he is one of the most positive people I know. So what that brings is an energy to VAB. And from a personal perspective, I've learned a lot, but I've also shared a lot. And I think that that is one of the things which is really important in life, because you learn an awful lot of new things about yourself and your capabilities by how and what and how often you share with others. So it's not an ego trip to be out there trying to communicate and and have discussions and lead podcasts and lead sessions because there's a selfish benefit to it. I learn from the questions that are asked. I learn from the material as I'm presenting it. And I'm also learning a tremendous amount from what I'm getting from other people. Uh, We've had some, Les Morgan's been a a terrific resource in VAB. Shimi's been a great resource in VAB. Um, And I just, I think what you need to do is you need to say to yourself, I can't do everything. But what I I can do is with, and there's enough planning and stuff out there that you can almost put together a curriculum for yourself. But if you're not participating as as a presenter or a panelist at some point, then I don't think the experience would be as rich because in, in, you know, we talk about member-driven organizations, VAB tends to be a member-driven organization. And so I think taking out and putting back is take the putting back is as important as the taking out. Well, that's a very, very interesting perspective because oftentimes we see that as, you know, ourselves as recipients. But the truth is that, you know, the more we share, uh, the more we get out of the network. Very, very unique perspective. As a Canadian, do you get better playing hockey watching it or playing? (laughs) You're right. That's a perfect analogy. (laughs) Yes. Very good, Bill. we, you know, reached the end of the episode, Bill, you know, and I think it was a great discussion. Uh, it was very, very light and entertaining and full of nice content for our audience. So I really wanted to thank you 
uh, Bill, not only for this, but for everything you're doing for the VAB community. And uh, I believe that uh, uh, either on this podcast or in many other occasions within VAB, uh, we're going to be more and more in touch. So thanks again for being on the VAB podcast, Bill. Andre, it's a pleasure and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much. And now, dear audience, that we've reached the end, I really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and be sure to expect more and more high-quality content over the next ones with more guests coming to share their knowledge and ideas. So stay tuned. Also, if you enjoyed this episode with Bill, don't forget to share it with your colleagues, friends, family, whomever you think will benefit from this great chat. That's it for now from the VAB podcast and see you in the next episode.